welcome to the Lobby Pod. This is Damian O'Darty. We have an incredible guest, or actually, I should say, a remarkably credible guest today. We have the managing uh, a partner of one of them, Annapolis' stalwart firms, that's Schwartz, Metz, Wise, and Kaufman. They're not just lobbyists. They are real attorneys uh, who also uh, practice in the, in the trades of government affairs and public affairs. Pam Metz Casemeyer is the managing partner of this. Uh, what, Pam? How are, how are you all? Like 30 years the firm been around? Yeah, maybe even a little longer than that. Well, longer than that because the original um, partner was Jay Schwartz, who's retired. Um, but yeah, I think I've been with the firm over about 30 years, not quite. And um, so, yeah, we've been around for a long time. Well, look, I'd like to go into my own introduction about Duke University and George Washington University, the University of Maryland School of Law. But I think uh, folks would love to hear from you, sort of how you got from being uh, uh, Pam Metz, uh, you know, college student, law student, what have you, to really one of the state's uh, leading advocates uh, in Annapolis. And anybody that knows politics knows that if you lead in a state, then you lead in the nation, because while we're the United States of America, uh, most often, sometimes we leave out the uh, America, sometimes we're not united, but we are always states. So if you're a leading person, especially in a leading state, um, that's what we have with us today. So Pam, give us a little background on, on sort of how you got to, to that place. Well, first and foremost, Damien, thank you. You're much, you're much too gracious, and um, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to talk with you. Um, and as many years as I've been doing this, I think this will be my 39th year in um, Annapolis because I went to law school a little later, um, was involved b before even I, I went to law school. But thank you very much for all the kind words. Um, so yeah, and I'm I'm not a I'm not a Maryland native. I'm uh, came up to the Maryland area after I finished um, college at Duke University, um, which is a fabulous place. And I know we've got lots of competition with Maryland and Duke and others, but um, it it was a great place to go to school. Um, and I um, came up this way afterwards. I uh, was a public policy major. Um, arrived at a time when employment opportunities were so, so, so like all good unemployed college students, I went to grad school. Um, and what got me involved in Annapolis is part of my grad school in, um, at GW and health administration landed me at shock trauma many years ago, uh, working um, under John Ashworth, who um, many people know. Wow. He was a leader at uh, University of Maryland um, for ever and at shock trauma originally. And um, to show you how long I've been around, I first came to Annapolis working with him in my grad school work when they were seeking to get funding for a new hospital for shock trauma and they needed $10 million. I don't need to tell many people right now, you probably need $10 million for an operating room. <laughs> they needed $10 million for the hospital. So it's sort Sounded of like you're quite a return on investment there for shotgun. <laughs> but uh but um Don was great to work with. It was a great system to be part of and sort of got my teeth cut in in, in Annapolis then and was uh, interested in policy to begin with and sort of have been there ever since. Um so it was a it was a good start. 
you know, uh, I think people that are sort of circa uh, late 90s coming into Annapolis and the 2000s, you know, we think of uh, your partner, Jay Schwartz, as sort of a, a giant in the field. Uh, but I always remember you two being uh, sort of like, you know, uh, a great counterbalance to one another. And it, it didn't seem I'm sure I'm sure you might object, but it didn't seem like a junior senior kind of relationship. I mean, you all seem to tackle like divide and conquer and collaborate and do all the things that great partners are supposed to do. And it just seemed to me that you were always sort of beyond your years um, in that sense. Any reaction to, to, to that? Well, once again, thank you very much. Um, and, and I will have to say, um, Jay was a fabulous partner. And I'd been in Annapolis a little while, as I said, before I went back to law school. And then once I was out of law school, I was there for a little while before Jay brought me in. But I have to say, Jay was a force. There's no doubt about it. But from day one, when I joined him, we were basically a team. He was never um, overly, um, he never overmanaged. He sort of said, you do what you feel you need to do. You're good at what you do. We're, you know, I've been here a long time, but you're here to to build your career and was always incredibly supportive. So um Perceptions of personalities and people and how they operate and the reality is very different, especially when you're in small uh, firms trying to 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 maximize the outcome for your clients. When you were getting uh, going there and then through the time that I think we had first met, maybe right around uh, like 2000 or such. Um, I, I went to, I think you all are kind enough to take me to lunch at Donna's or something right there in Mount Vernon. I think you all had an office pretty close. And what was the whole dynamic with your Mount Vernon presence there? So, yeah, when I joined Jay, we had an office in um, Mount Vernon. Um, in, in part, that was when a lot more of the departmental issues uh, happened during the interim. We were practicing attorneys, a lot of administrative law and other agency and regulatory issues. And Jay lived in Baltimore. And so so we had an office there all along, legal and lobbying. And we'd, we'd have space in Annapolis just during session. And then eventually we did migrate down to Annapolis uh, full time. But it was great being in Baltimore while the time we were there. And obviously Mount Vernon's a fun part of the city to be in. Yeah, now you're taking some of Baltimore's best. You got Drew Vetter uh, coming down as a as a a, a new uh, team member there with the firm. Talk about that dimension. What what Drew's adding to uh, the experience with the firm? Yeah, we're super excited to have Drew join us. Um, he joined us in September, and um, he just brings a host of experience. Obviously, all of us in the firm have been around for a long time, but everybody, when you're lobbying and doing advocacy work, everybody has sort of their spaces that they feel as well or better than others. And Drew just brings such a wealth of experience at the state and local level, having come from the governor's office to the city for a while and to the county. We're, we're super excited for him to bring all of that experience with him. Christine Crone. 
Steve Wise, my old uh, law school uh, colleague there. I should say my very young law, law school colleague there. And then Dana Kaufman, like, uh, always has been a rock star, but in sort of a Jody Mitchell kind of way, like on her own terms, which I always thought was super cool. Talk to me about your partners in the firm and uh, what you all expect to, to see this session. Well, yeah, and thank you very much. And I am extremely lucky. My partners are fabulous. And, um, you know, we all sort of have our areas where we do a little more work than others, but we truly share across clients and internally. And um, we're almost like a little family, good, good, bad, or otherwise joking, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, and I think we all have our subject matter expertise. Yeah, talk, can you talk a little bit about that, uh, Pam? Just your, just like who's sort of uh, who's hot in what area? What, what you know? What what each person's expertise is, in your view, just as a little thumbnail for some of us that are trying to fill gaps and find leaders for projects across the state. Yeah, well, thank you. So, um, and and a little bit is how people joined us. Obviously I've been here long, the longest with Jay. And then when Jay retired, but Steve and Dana came in before he retired. So Steve is sort of soup to nuts, business, alcohol, environment. And we do a lot of healthcare work as, as many people know. Dana really came to us with incredible experience in the healthcare arena, plus having come out of the governor's office also, but in the healthcare arena, um, long-term care, nursing home, hospice, and general across-the-board healthcare um, experience. Um, I do a lot of healthcare, but I also do a fair amount of environmental and energy work. So we really work very hard, sort of from A to Z in terms of subject matter area. And we've also learned, and I think that's where firms really get their strength, that all of us have our strengths and weaknesses or relationships that are stronger in some regards. So while we may have clients that are our, our priority to manage, we share all the information internally and try to, you know, maximize those relationships across the partners as well. Sometimes Steve or Dana will have, uh, and now Drew will have a relationship with someone better than I do. And I'll say, hey, I got, you know, this client's going to need this. Can we talk about it? And we'll work collectively on it, even if it's not subject matter expertise. So this is uh, trying to sort of put together all the experiences uh, of your firm and the, the personalities in it, and then collide that with, um, you know, a generational shift in the leadership in the legislature, you know, um, a new governor from a different party. Um, a new comptroller, a new attorney general. I mean, just such a tremendous amount of change to you all. Does it seem like less impactful who those personalities are because you all are such issue experts and sort of the the political dynamic or the personality or the elected official is is not necessarily in the foreground because you all are so much deeper in the issues or do you have to you know do you have to you know do you have to be as deep in both areas as um subject matter politics how do you all balance all that um well i think to be successful in the work that we do you have to be kind of 
really strong in both areas. I mean, um, there's no doubt it, it new new governor, new changes in the legislature and others. If we're going to be successful, we need we need to be aware and get to know these people. Some many of whom we know, but get to know the new officials and the new leadership as they're rolling out. Some of them may or may not be people we already have relationships with. Our job and our role on behalf of our clients is to develop those relationships where they don't already exist. The generation. So you can't you can't rest on your policy laurels and your your thirty years of being in and out of the bureaucracy and the policy issues. You can't you can't you can't hang back at all, eh? Well, no. I mean, I think knowing the information and having the history behind that and and. I believe our firm has that reputation of being substantively knowing what we're talking about and being very straightforward, both positive and negative about the realities of client positions and issues. But that being said, we have to know people like in our world or in the world generally, you need to appreciate the perspectives of the other people you're talking with, what they know, what they don't know, what they'd like to know, what their perspectives are, because ultimately, and I've been doing this work for close to 40 years, and I'm not cynical yet. I think most of the elected officials, vast majority really are there to try to make a difference. And everybody sort of has to learn to talk with each other and know where people are coming from in order to deliver the information necessary to help them know how to make decisions. Do these people, do these new faces and voices, a new, you know, deputy attorney general, um, a new deputy health secretary, a director of Medicaid, do you find that they that they seek you all out uh, on particular issues, as well as you trying to to find information out about them? Because uh, when I was in public service in Baltimore County, where Drew was yeah i just felt like it was such a great opportunity to go out and ask other people you know ask industry experts such as yourself in long-term care and hospitals whatever um and then sort of pick your brain uh as a means to try to uh not only develop my network in the government working with external folks but also trying to build some level of general expertise to do people reach out to you all, or do they see you more as advocates that, and this, I guess, is an industry-wide question, or do they see you more as kind of advocates that, uh, you know, anytime they're engaging, it gets a little flinty, so they like a little space as a as a bureaucrat or as a decision maker. Does that make any sense as a question, or am I? No, I, I think I understand what you're saying, and I, and I guess I would say once again, there's a little bit of both in that. Um, I do think our reputation and, and, and you know, as you transition within the agencies, people who are staying or leaving, and there'll probably be a, a combination of two, I, I would presume in, in many cases share with each other who they've worked with, who they feel they can trust, who they talk to. And so, yes, we do get people from agencies reaching out. We want to be perceived that way, so they do, but it's also our obligation on behalf of our clients as well. Like, as you know, we represent MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society and many other 
uh, healthcare provider specialties. And, you know, on behalf of our clients, we need to know the people within the agencies and know them so they can trust us and we can get questions answered or they can get questions answered. So it's a little bit of both. Yes, they do reach out, um, but we, we we have an obligation from our perspective to build those relationships as well. That's a heck of a quarterback you have over there at MedKai and Gene Ransom. I mean, I you know, what a star that leader is. How does he engage with you all? Are you are you sort of the cavalry there? Is he he plays sort of a a, a face forward and, and policy forward role, um, and then you guys are sort of the execution team around him. No, I mean Gene. We are lucky. Gene's very engaged, very active, very connected. Um, does a fabulous job on behalf of the physician community without question. Um, but we're a team with him, and you know we're thankful to have a leader of one of our of our one of our largest clients that. Um, really gets it and is engaged. Um, That's right. And we're thankful for his reliance on us to, um, to, to also work independently and shape and bring things and advise him in the reverse order. So it's a little bit of both again. Legislature has a lot of uh, new power this cycle for the first time. My understanding is owing to a state referendum that, the voters decided to give the legislature uh, some more power and control over the state budget. So instead of just taking things out of the governor's budget, they are now authorized to uh, put capital and operating dollars into the budget uh, under their own determination or fiat. Um, what does that mean for for professionals like you, to me, who who always is trying to find the the power balance between the executive and legislative branch to get things done. It seems to me, this is a, this is a pretty big shift. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tremendous shift. And I think um, this year will be the year that we see slowly how this plays out, because I think there's a lot of question marks across lobbyists, legislators, executive branch about how they're actually going to roll all this out, because obviously um, the ability to independently add funding to the budget changes the dynamics dramatically, but there's still going to be a limitation on dollars. So how does that get, you know, managed out both on the legislative and the executive side? And quite frankly, as us, as, as, um, as, advocates it's it's going to be a learning process not a learning process but we're going to need to engage with our clients and help them to understand we need to work through this in year one it doesn't mean we're not asking for money on your behalf but on the other hand please don't jump to the conclusion that just because they do it it's going to be easy and different because it, it, it's really undefined at this juncture and i think it has everyone sort of uh i don't know Duly excited, anxious, uncertain, whatever, <laughs> all of those emotions at the same time. All right. It's going to be interesting to see. I remember like the first time I ever heard of the Burfa. I was like, whoa, that sounds like magic. This sounds like a whole nother level of play, you know. Talk to me about the culture of lobbying in Annapolis. Um, 
say when we when we got started uh, earlier on versus what you're seeing today. You know, from my from my outside perspective, and and it could be like a male thing. So I'm just I'm just uh, trying to excuse myself for that. But to me, it was always like the list. And, you know, is it going to be this figure at the top of the list or that figure at the top of the list? And they had the most brutal, vicious, like knockdown professional battles. And I just, you know, I don't know if it's getting a little distance or getting a little space over the last few years. But to me, it seems like there's a much more collaborative environment down there than sort of the lobbying. Again, this is where the the sad male ego perspective comes in, but, you know, sort of this blood sport of lobbying that, that I recollect being, you know, um, a witness to Uh, any reactions to any of those uh, viewpoints. I don't know. That's kind of a, a, of all the things you've asked so far, that's something I'd have to think about a little more than the others. I sort of knew immediately how I'd respond. I mean, I do think, uh, you know, you don't have as many, sort of independent solo lobbyists as you have before, but you have some that are still powerhouses and do a fabulous job and form really strong relationships. And then you have, you know, a broader range of firms now with um, ages and expertise and background. And so that has changed a little bit. Um, I think um, it, 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 so in some ways, there's a lot more collaboration. In other ways, um, firms have a different ways of doing their work, and it sort of matters more how issues cross. Some are more substantive, some are more political. Um, it's 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 a it's a wider variety of approach approaches to how the work gets done. I would agree with you on that. That maybe that used to be the case. Um, but there's also probably a little um, less sort of social interaction and give and take um, across um, firms and 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 areas. And some of that over the last few years, just the whole nature due to the pandemic and everything else. The social nature of, of um, Annapolis, I think, is somewhat is quite different than it used to be as well. Yeah. So, what should we expect to see? In the future, does that just mean that means sort of? I'm going to take a guess here. That means there's been less social events, less sort of uh, activities, obviously because of the pandemic, um, and so people have found out uh, sort of a way to get their jobs done with all you know with outside of that sort of flow, so to speak. Yeah, and I think it's too a little too hard to answer at the moment. I mean, I think that's what we'll see as the new administration and the new member, you know, the new general assembly enacts, and as we are sort of slowly but and carefully working out of those changes back to you know more of an in person, what I would call normal from my perspective, only because I've been here forever. For some people. The changes weren't as great. It didn't seem as great as for someone maybe like had been around as long as I have. But I think, you know, I think it's a mixture of things too. Some of it's um, age, demographic issues and things like that. Like are um, legislators with families and things still going to stay in Annapolis? Are they going to, you know, 
go home at night to their families. Those are all um, socially related issues that have nothing to do with substance, nothing to do with process, but do change to a certain extent how, you know, you don't run into someone in that, you know, on the street in the evening than the way maybe you did before, but but maybe you see them more often in their in their offices. So it's a little hard to tell at this juncture, and it's it it'll somewhat be dependent on how the new um, legislators sort of integrate their the rest of their world with the Annapolis session ninety days. Now you have the ideal location because you're like closest to all of the decision makers, but you're also close to some of the the restaurants and the fun over there. <laughs> um, I won't I won't force you to give any sort of uh, best uh, favorite restaurants that that that's one that I've learned drives the podcast guests crazy. But um, what I what I do want to talk to you about is your career. If you talk about issue areas, healthcare and environment, two huge spaces. I would say, you know, I put Maryland's healthcare thought leadership up against anybody in the countries. I would put Maryland's environmental thought leadership above anybody in the countries. Um, And so if we're coming into this session and we have the benefit of Pam Metz Casemeyer, who has been in these two issue areas and coming into this session, and we got, we got five or six minutes left with you. What could we steal out of you? What perspectives and insights could we steal out of you? First about what we should be looking at in healthcare, maybe generally could be a new person, could be a new policy, could be an old uh, idea that needs to be resuscitated. And then, and then if you could do the same thing in the environmental space, and then I promise I won't ask any more questions. <laughs> Thanks. And, you know, once again, it's a little, little hard to fit to, to, figure out when we have so much change and so much, you know, transition. But I think in the healthcare space, you're still going to see a tremendous focus as we should on um, addressing behavioral health issues, um, some system reform within the insurance industry. You know, we've got a lot of issues with um, utilization review and prior authorization and access to care. I know there's going to be a lot of conversation about how to increase access to healthcare coverage itself, whether it's immigration status related or low income related auto enrollment, there's a lot of issues like that that we're gonna be looking at. Um, I think, uh, you know, telehealth and access and things we've learned or, or need to learn from what's occurred during the pandemic, all of those, there's no doubt that healthcare will continue to be a, a, a pretty dramatic focus of the General Assembly. Um, and, and similarly, on the environmental side, it's been very interesting, not very interesting, I shouldn't say interesting. As you know, last year, Maryland, you know, the primary focus of the General Assembly was on the, uh, on, on the Climate Solutions Act bill. So much of that policy may have been addressed in that legislation, but there's the implementation and rollout. I think in the environmental space, the thing we need to be very, very, very careful about is our objectives have been very um, a- aggressive and cognizant of climate change and the need to move forward and the need to dr- address it. But I also think we need to be exceedingly careful to evaluate the um, economic impacts, to evaluate 
to evaluate the realistic expectations and to make sure we don't put Maryland into a posture where the objectives are fabulous, but the execution becomes challenging. And so therefore, I think that's where a lot of the focus will be. And on the environmental space, it may or may not be as much in the regulatory side as the legislative side. And I think that's still yet to be determined. Thank you for that analysis. I feel like we've all, uh, we can all take that uh, a long way. I want to talk about this decarbonization issue um, that, that that you're getting into in the, in the environment. I'm already lying about the question. This will be my last question. But I heard a good point of view on that is like, yeah, we got to decarbonize. We want to be a people want to be a national leader out of Maryland in this, but we got to do it in a way that works for the ratepayers. And you know, that for somebody that might not have been around the last you know 10, 20 years ago you know elections were won and lost on these uh, utility rates and so to me it seems like one of these very artful balancing acts that's going to have to take place and it's probably going to have to take place at the PSC as well as the legislature but this idea that yeah we want to do all these things there is a statewide consensus to do big things uh, on climate, but we've got to do it in a way that the ratepayers can can, aff- can afford it and can um, can manage that. Is that is that too simple of a point of view, or is that is that a decent stake to put in the ground? Well, I think the ratepayer issue is a legitimate stake, but I think also there's the practicality um, and actual achievability. For instance, there's all this conversation about electrification whether it's building codes or vehicle purchase requirements, when you've got to be sure that those technologies and that infrastructure can actually happen, even if you wanted it to happen, or what it takes to do so. And are we creating expectations that practically speaking, it may not even be a rate issue, it may just be we are not there yet. Don't. So you're saying, yeah, what you're saying, what I'm picking up there is, you know, Baltimore, for example, has been doing um, electric since what, like the 1880s or 1890s. And they build on that network. You know, every year there's a budget to improve that network to where we are. A hundred and what have you years later, here we are. Uh, I heard that it might take like uh, two two times the infrastructure to handle the goals of the electrification, uh, or it might you know it sounds to me like we've got to contemplate the amount of infrastructure that it's going to require. You know the number of NIMBYs you're going to have to tell that they need a you know they need a power station in their in their neighborhood or what have you. It just seems like there's a lot of political risk to some uh a lot of political risk a lot of economic development risk to not thinking this stuff through yeah and i think that's where all the work really comes down because in some regards what's the phrase devil's in the details and it's not to say it's bad the details are bad all the time the goals are good and maybe the details will be good but at the end of the day implementation is as much or more a factor um, sometimes even more than the rate issues, even if you had the money, there may not be the the capability or the timing issues. So those kinds of things are definitely going to be the source of a lot of um, lot of consideration, both 
at the regulatory and the legislative level. Well, we're going to talk to our producer about paywalling the last 10 minutes of this conversation with Pam Casemeyer because it is, uh, it's too astute to give away for free. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us, Pam. Oh, no, thank you for the opportunity. You guys are the best, and you do a fabulous job keeping keeping so many people aware of the dynamics in the state. Um Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, if if I just continue to express my misunderstandings and you continue to gently correct me, folks, you know, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll come to an understanding. So Pam Metz Casemeyer, she's from Schwartz, Metz, Wise, and Coffin. Thank you so much for being with us on the lobby. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day.